Order in the House, I'm Kerry Eustace and this is a politically themed careers tour. Are you still reeling from the comprehensive spending review? Do you feel you could do a better job than George Osborne trimming the state's finances and shaping the nation? Does your idea of a dream office include the Houses of Parliament, Downing Street and other such Westminster landmarks? Well, this week we'll be exploring various roles and opportunities in the world of politics and government. Later in the pod, we'll be joined by former special advisor turned Guardian staffer David Mills, MP researcher Kate McCann and long-suffering intern Kira Shakroon is dropping by to explain why you won't catch her working for a think tank again. Plus, Ali heads down to the Foreign Office to interview the Minister for Europe and talks to graduates on the civil service fast stream. But first, we have the hottest careers headlines of the week in our news roundup. Harriet Minter and Ali White are with me to talk about the growing numbers of graduate jobs, giving advice to your boss and the funny interview compilation that could help you melt your interview nerves. Hello both. Hi. Oh. <laughs> Ali, go on, you start off with your story. Okay, some good news this week. Um, it's a straw poll of leading graduate recruiters on a Guardian money piece, which actually suggested signs of a return to buoyancy for graduate recruitment. So there's um, lots of advertising for fresh blood again, and this is everything from financial services, law, engineering, to marketing and advertising. So I've picked up a few examples, but it's well worth checking out the piece if you're looking for a job. Mm. So engineering, for example, um, according to research, there's 20,000 odd engineers who graduate each year from that discipline. But apparently there's data from the Institute for Employment Research predicting a need for around 600,000 jobs with engineering skills over the next 10 years. And it picks out an example of one recruiter. Network Rail is planning to recruit around 100 graduates in 2011, Mm -hmm. which is good news. And there's signs of encouragement in legal recruitment even, you know, after we've talked about the doom and gloom there. Um, So law firms that didn't offer training contracts two years ago are now recruiting and grads that were deferred are starting their contracts. And apparently many firms will also be offering paralegal positions. So, yeah, there's lots of good news in that piece. Now, maybe we could link to it in the show notes and you can have a look. Returning confidence to the market, then, it seems, from mm. recruiters. It's good news. Mm. Harriet, what's your story? Okay, well, this week um, I have been looking at what to do if you're actually employed and some of the issues you can face kind of in the workplace. And um, one of them is how you talk to your boss if you're sort of unhappy about something or you want to change something. And this kind of came up because Crone Corkhill, who are a recruitment agency, asked 291 PAs and office managers and administrators what is the one thing they would like to tell their boss. And there was sort of the usual, like, you know, more one-to-ones, um, make time to communicate effectively. But some of my personal favourites were um, do not touch your diary, you're not qualified, and tone down the ties. <laughs> um, so, but I sort of, looking at it, and it made me think about how you talk to your boss if there is something that you feel you want to say to them which maybe is kind of not you know not the most positive thing um and there's some quite good advice out there on the way to kind of bring up tricky situations with your boss and some things that you should be doing um so the first one is making sure you pick the right time and place so if you're unhappy about something wait until you've stopped feeling emotional about it if you can check your boss's diary try and find a time when he hasn't got anything else on that he's going to be thinking about and go and sit down and talk to him face-to-face rather than over the phone or by email. 
then when you are talking, make sure that you try and present your problem with a solution. So instead of just saying, I don't like this, say, I've thought that this isn't working as well as it could do. Can we do this instead? And the other one was try and make your language sound really positive. So instead of saying, um, I think we're, we've got a horrible working environment, say, I think we've got a great working environment. I've come up with ways we can make it even better. And that instantly puts people more on your level. And I just thought it was quite interesting because sometimes it can be quite intimidating talking to people above you when you've got an idea and you're not sure how to express it. Thanks very much. So good tips. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for uh, advice, careers advice that sort of breaks the mold or is a bit more fun because sometimes it can be a little, you know, sort of samey and dull. And um, I was scouring Twitter, as always, and um, I came across a tweet from Autumn St. John and she's a sort of business and careers journalist and she'd linked to a video where it compiled lots of funny interview uh, clips from TV and film. And uh, and it is it is really funny. So it sort of takes from films like Step Brothers, and I think there's one from The Graduate as well, which I don't suppose people would associate with a really funny film, but <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and there was a guy that had uh, he'd, he'd created like a fake CV, a fake resume, and he'd put as the companies that he'd worked for as sort of Skynet and Omnicore, which are from Terminator and, uh, <laughs> and from Robocop. And she knew this, and he was like, "Oh, you really know your films," and 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 it was just full of really sort of choice sort of quotes about well, not what to do on CVs and then there was another video um, about a it was called the resume gets wings and it's about a guy who's being interviewed by you know quite a tough looking corporate type and as he's reading his CV the interviewer starts folding it up into a paper airplane and sort of just throws it, <laughs> throws it <laughs> and it hits, it hits him like bang in the forehead overlaid uh, to the paper plane song that MIA does that's on uh, Slumdog Millionaire and um, what I really liked about these is um, I've been sort of looking into a lot about sort of interview nerves and one of the tips that I'd found is that if you're, if you're sort of feeling fearful and nervous it's really good to find something funny or to think you know to laugh your nerves away and I thought if you were, <laughs> if you had an interview on the horizon, that these videos would be the great way to melt your nerves away. And they're from uh, My Workster, which has also got a commitment to sort of adding more fun to careers advice. So I'd really recommend that you all check them out. So we're striding straight into the corridors of power now. Ali took the trusty careers mic down to an event at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office called Communicating EU Careers to Graduates. As you might expect from the title, it aimed to profile and promote careers in the EU as part of the government's commitment to increasing the numbers of Brits working within EU institutions. Ali, can you set the scene for us? Sure, it's very exciting at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, you know, very ornate and beautiful rooms. And yeah, I was joining um, university representative, language teachers, and careers advisors all here, all there. Sorry, to hear about what opportunities there are in the EU for the UK graduates from their own institutions. Really. All right, let's hear the interviews. My name's David Bearfield, and I'm the director of the European Personnel Selection Office. Yeah, this is a really fantastic event that we're so pleased that the UK government has organised to really publicise the fact that there are some great careers on offer in the European Union. 
but that British people just haven't been applying for them in anything like the right numbers. And graduates make up the majority of the people that we hire. Uh, and over a third of the staff of the EU institutions are going to retire over the next 10 years. So there's going to be a real generational change. And so it's, it's for us really important that we get people who are at least as talented, as motivated and committed uh, for, the, for the future of the European Union. I'm here with the Minister for Europe, David Liddington. We saw in the video that you were in Edinburgh recently launching this campaign. And were you surprised by the reaction of the students and how they didn't know much about the EU and they were worried about their language skills? I wasn't surprised. Um, what that meeting in Edinburgh did bring home to me is how much work needs to be done in order to explain to uh, new and prospective graduates um, what the jobs are that are, are on offer and to encourage them to take the plunge. Um, I mean, I think there are a number of different reasons why we're so badly underrepresented. But the last time the Concours, the, the EU entrance exam, uh, was sat. Only just over one and a half percent of people who applied were from the UK, yet we have twelve and a half percent of the EU's population. So that leads to huge underrepresentation. Well, my name's Antonia Mocken and I'm head of media at the European Commission's UK office. Brussels is a fantastic place to live. It's like university with money and good restaurants. You're with bright, intelligent people from all over the place you, who are fun, who are interested in the same things as you. Um, it's, a, it's a really sort of exciting environment to be in. And Brussels, contrary to popular belief, is a really cool city. A lot of bands come there and you can see people that you'd have to see at Wembley Stadium in the UK, you can see in really small, intimate venues. It's easy to get out of. You're in Paris in an hour, you're in Amsterdam in an hour and a bit. So it's, it's, it's fantastic and I really don't regret a minute of my 13 years there. My name's Luke Bullock. I'm going to be working at the FCO on the European Fast Stream. Can you tell me a bit about the application process for the Fast Stream, please? The, uh, the application process for the Fast Stream at first glance can seem quite daunting, it's quite long, but one of the things that really struck me and one of the things that really encouraged me is I do think that it allows you to really show who you are and I think it really does pick out people who are who are really well suited to the job. You get an opportunity to, to really demonstrate your skills at the assessment centre in a variety of different exercises. So there's far less pressure, I feel, on sort of any particular, you know, getting on with one person in an interview, for example. You really do get the opportunity to show your strengths. I'm here with a fast streamer, Scott Bailey. Tell us a bit more about the language training you'll get. I mean, I did uh, French AS level and German A level, so I'm hoping to do the concours in German because I've done a bit of working uh, in German. I think the idea is that it will be very much tailored towards your specific needs. So for me, I think they're looking at a minimum of two hours, one-to-one -one training a week, and then a group session, then potentially more intensive uh, in the run-up to a concours or to if you if you have more needs, then it might go to three hours, four hours. So it's all being done centrally by the. Uh, the people who are in charge of the fast stream. Say if someone wants to apply, what kind of things do they need to know? Basically, um, we have a two-stage selection process for most vacancies. So you have a computer-based pre-selection test, which you could take anywhere uh, in the European Union and even overseas. Um, and that generally consists of some form of reasoning tests and other tests depending on the, the, the nature of the vacancy. And if you pass that, we take the best people to come to an assessment centre, and that's the big change. It's a competency-based assessment centre that will be held in Brussels or in Luxembourg where you have a whole day to show what you can do. But um, what's also important is that the lot of, whilst you need language ability, um, previously the test had a, a strong knowledge element and often knowledge about the European Union and its history and its institutions and those, that has gone now. 
Uh, and so it's much easier for people to apply with their competences, their skills, their experience without having to spend a year kind of mugging up on a EU trivial pursuit. So it's a tough time for graduates at the moment looking mm. for work. And if um, they're thinking about EU careers, where, where do they start really? Where can they go and find out what they might be um, eligible for really? Well, they can find out from, they can go to the Foreign Office website where we have a page um, available for them to uh, find out more and have some, some useful links uh, to careers in the EU. They can go to Europa, which is the EU's own website. I hope, particularly after today, that uh, this is going to be highlighted on a larger number of university careers and language departments' websites. But while language students are an obvious target group, there will be an awful lot of students, engineering, law, um, other disciplines, who will have a language skill in addition to their main degree subject and I want to encourage them too. So were there any key points that came through on the day that you want to highlight? The thing that I thought was really interested in how, is how important it is to get the British way of thinking represented in Europe. So, you know, when everyone's around the table from these Europe, European states, then we're actually, you know, the British way of thinking is represented through the people that work in these different jobs and a massive variety of jobs. You know, I, I am guilty of thinking EU is all about translating and interpreting, but there's all sorts, you know, from lawyers to... And one of the people I interviewed actually pointed out, you know, imagine the roles in Whitehall. They're pretty much the, the opportunities available in Europe you know so everything you can think of we've got even more insights into usually closed doors now as we're joined by intern turned parliamentary researcher Kate McCann she's prepared a reading on her first week in Westminster which covers everything from stuffing envelopes to making small talk with David Cameron as he warms up for his run, no less, and also how to handle the interview that gets you through the door. Having graduated from Newcastle University with a degree in politics and an ambition to be a political journalist, I moved to London but struggled to get a job without any experience. Knowing that competition for jobs in journalism was high, I submitted my CV to my own MP during my final year in the hope of a few weeks' work experience to put on my application forms. However, unable to offer me work experience, the MP passed my CV on to a colleague and I found myself face-to-face -face with my current employer about six months later. In Westminster, internships are common and most MPs' offices will take on interns to help ease the workload. The internship acts as a rite of passage for future researchers, as MPs are wary of taking on staff without practical knowledge of how Parliament works. My interview was with the MP's office manager and researcher and was testing but not too formal. I was asked about my own experience as well as how much I knew about the MP and why I wanted the internship. Thankfully, I'd done my research and was offered a six-month internship, which, although unpaid, included expenses to cover my travel and food every day. I remember my first day clearly, trying hard not to stare as the people I spent three years studying stood next to me in the queue for lunch. I also remember how hard it was to adapt to the demands of an MP's office and the realisation that in Westminster, the working day never ends at six o'clock as business in the house can go on late into the night. The first few weeks were a steep learning curve. I remember meeting my MP for the first time and her turning to me as we strode down a corridor, me running along behind, looking me dead in the eyes and asking why I wasn't a member of the party. Flustered but determined, I offered that I didn't feel able to become a member of the party as I both agreed and disagreed with elements of them all. I worried nervously, wondering if I'd just blown my chances as she studied me closely, smiled and carried on walking. 
I learnt very quickly that you have to have an answer for every question asked, even if it's not the right one, as it might be your only opportunity to offer an opinion and people make their minds up quickly. That day, I went into the House of Commons for the first time. It's much smaller than you think. But as well as the exciting things, being an intern meant I also had the more mundane office responsibilities too, such as making tea, doing the washing up and stuffing envelopes. To make up for it though, one of the best things about being a researcher, and something you only get a taste of as an intern, is the varied nature of the job. That first week, as I was walking to the kitchen to make a cup of tea, I met David Cameron, shorts and t-shirt on, leg propped up on a sofa mid-stretch. Naturally, I stopped and stared, and he, having provoked numerous interns into the same reaction before, smiled and asked me how I was enjoying Westminster. I garbled an answer and turning to walk back the way I'd come without the tea, shouted back, Enjoy your run, Mr Cameron! Perhaps not the best first impression, but the opportunity to make it at all means that hundreds of cups of tea later, it's still worth it. Thank you for that, Kate. It was really interesting. And all, I wanted to congratulate you on how well you're doing. You used to be an intern for us on Careers, and now you're at the Houses of Parliament. It's amazing. I know, yeah. Are you enjoying it? <laughs> yeah, really enjoying it, yeah. Uh, the first six months as an intern was really exciting, but the last five months as a proper employed researcher have been even better. Kate's sticking around as we've got a party of past and present political players in the pod now. And they're all going to be sharing their insights and advice from their time spent working in the world of politics. Joining Kate is David Mills, who worked as a special advisor at the Treasury and the Cabinet Office, and Kira Shakroon, whose internship diary you may remember from a few shows ago, an analyst for Guardian Sustainable Business and a former think tanker. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thanks for coming in. I wanted to ask, um, start off by asking you whether you think in the climate for cuts is a now is a good time for people who want to get into politics to stop pursuing that career. Is, it, is there going to be opportunities out there for people, do you think? Well, um, I don't think too many MPs will try and go without a researcher or um, the coalition aren't, haven't really cut the numbers of special advisors at all. So I think the same number of jobs are, are pretty much still there and it's never been a a route that people take for for money so uh, I think it's probably as good an option or as bad an option as it's ever been really. What do you think Kate I mean are there lots of interns sort of coming through so there's chances to get your foot in the door maybe? I'd agree I mean the same amount of researchers are still in Westminster but the opportunities to become an intern are perhaps opened up when MPs are looking for an alternative to employing maybe full-time staff I mean I know some MPs employ a part-time researcher and have interns at the same time so there are more opportunities out there. All right, David, can you tell us a bit about what your job entails and, you know, what that sort of role means for other people? Well, um, it was a, a very fun, very demanding role. Um, I did it for the last year of, of the last government, which was a pretty testing time all, all, all around, really. It tends not to be the sort of job you get straight out of university, although William Hay did employ a special advisor straight out of university very recently and got into hot water about it for different reasons. Um, <laughs> it's... You're essentially a, a, a political aide to the minister and the cabinet minister, uh, working alongside the civil servants who are who are, work on policy and work very closely, obviously, with the minister, but not on politics. So you're kind of tolerated, and, and in fact, the, the civil servants like having you around because that means they can leave all the politics stuff, all the things about attacking your opponents and, and defending your um, your, your the, the attacks that they make on you, effectively, um, politically to you so they can keep their hands clean and leave you to, to get on with the, with with uh, with the, that's that end of the business so it's 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 fun you get a lot of good access you get to see um kind of politics actually happening very close up which is uh, if you're interested in politics then it's uh, 
it's uh, you know it's kind of what it's all about really but it's it, you tend not to make a career out of it it tends to be something you do for a few years and then uh, then hop off was that the appeal for you Kate seeing politics up close yeah being able to see things that you don't ordinarily get the chance to see I mean you in my job I'm really lucky I can go and watch PMQs I can walk past people in the corridor I can be privy to meetings that ordinarily I wouldn't be and that's really special and I know how lucky I am so let's talk a bit about sort of career paths now. Like I know, Kate, you touched on it in your reading, but David, how did you sort of end up being a special advisor? What steps did you take? Um, well, first of all, I should say that the word special doesn't mean better. It, it, it's a civil <laughs> service... best advisor. Uh, it's, a, it's a civil service word meaning unusual uh, because all, all senior civil servants are above a certain point are known as advisors. So it's a kind of warning sign around your neck, really, rather than a, rather than a medal. Um, I kind of... Uh, worked in political television for 10 years and you meet people you meet ministers you meet their advisors you meet um mps on the way up and you you, eventually people who think you might want that sort of job when one comes up and people ask them or who hasn't done it yet who do we who who can we convince to come in for the last year possibly the last year of the government and i think eventually just enough people had already done it or didn't want to do it and my name came to the top of a few lists and so it's not really a, a case of, of, of who you know in terms of the minister, although some ministers do hire people they know very well, perhaps from a previous, a previous job they've done. But it, 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 politics is a people business. You know, it, it's, it's like media, it's like, it's like journalism. You need to be able to connect with people. You need to know, who, know who's doing what and have a decent sense of, of um, as well as the, uh, as the issues, also the people who are, who are kind of running them. So it's a job you tend to pick up there isn't an application form you get asked to, to if you'd like to pop in for an interview and then uh, you sort of take it from there really it's quite informal so what, what were the steps for you where you went from tv in just straight into your advisor role yeah tv uh, political tv uh, into that and then um back out again and uh, and to the guardian and into journalism for the <laughs> hopefully well the, ne- the next um very long period of time i, I can't see me popping in back into politics anytime soon. What about you, Kate? I mean, you went from an intern into a paid job, so is that quite typical, would you say? I think it's quite typical of interns and researchers. It's not quite the same with special advisors, but to be a researcher in the first place, MPs often like you to have a bit of relevant experience, and whether that's because you've done some work experience when you were at university with your local MP or being an intern, most people typically go from an internship to working with an MP, not necessarily the same MP, but an MP within Westminster. Um, for example, when after the election this time, there were so many new MPs who all needed, you know, new researchers that everybody who was an intern at that point got a job as a researcher. So it's it, it's probably the best way to get that job. It's 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 like you said before, it's a stepping stone. It's something that you go up and you meet enough people, and somebody might mention your name at some point, and then you'll get to be where you want to be. Another side of it is what you've worked in, isn't it, Kira? So you did some internships at think tanks but didn't quite like it. Do you want to tell us a bit about why you wanted to work there, what it was like and why you didn't enjoy yeah. it? Well, I first started at a international affairs think tank that had a lot of interaction with uh, Westminster. Uh, it wasn't for me. I think that you need to have a very thick skin to survive in that world, in my opinion, and uh, it just didn't mesh with my personality and with what I wanted to achieve in my career. Right, I want to ask you all about sort of the hours and the culture now. I mean, Kate, you touched about that in your reading, didn't you? Um, the 6pm, there's still stuff going on in the house. I mean, can you all share maybe a little bit of insight into what the hours are like and what the offices are like and stuff, Kira? Yeah, well, the think tank was an internship, so... 
we were meant to leave the office at around six o'clock. I had confused it for 6.30, so which meant that for six weeks I was the last one out, which inadvertently created quite a good impression of myself, <laughs> but I didn't actually mean it. Now, as an intern, I think you're always welcome to leave at five, six. Now, that was fine, that was okay, but then when I went into kind of a more political internship is what in Westminster was a bit looked down upon, even if you were unpaid, to leave uh, at a reasonable hour. I would guess a lot of nights I left at around 8.39 uh, to make calls for, for MPs who were running uh, for election, that kind of stuff. But uh, it's all part of the experience. While I was doing it, I thought to myself, it's very important to think that this is a time in your life when you're supposed to be working the hardest and building the most experience. And it's not about the money, it's about making a good impression of yourself and, and learning the most. Kate, what do you sort of feel about hours and culture? I'd agree. I mean, I think I think an internship in Westminster and, and a research job, you get out of it exactly what you put in. So if you want to leave at 6 o'clock as an intern or if as a researcher you want to say, I've got to go tonight at 6 o'clock, you can do that. No one's going to stop you from doing that, but that's going to limit the amount of places you can go and the amount of things you can do because... Everybody, well, in Westminster there's a culture of, um, you know, there's lots of events going on after work, there's lots of things that go on in the evenings, you know, receptions, parties, things like that. And it's not, you know, it's not a high-flying lifestyle, but there is lots, there is a lot to do. And if you want to take advantage of that, then you have to be prepared to stay later. And the the times that you leave and that you, you go in differ depending on the year as well. I mean, Parliament goes into recess for a, a big chunk of the year, and in recess you can start later and you can leave earlier, but... When you're not in recess, you're expected to be there when you're needed, and you can leave when you're not needed. Um, and in the election, likewise, you know, things run on into the night, then you have to stay. You can't just drop things that you're in the middle of doing. So it is hard work, but but it's really rewarding, and a lot of things that you get out of it that you wouldn't get out if you didn't put those hours in. Dave, you also worked during the election, didn't you? I mean, was it quite tough hours? Yeah, well, the, well, the, the election was um, the itself was, was quite fun because that was you, you know you're actually knocking on doors and ringing bells and talking to people, delivering leaflets, and you're outdoors. That, that that's quite that, that was quite fun. Um, the, the kind of worst time really was during budgets and pre-budget reports where you're spending mm -hmm. the weekend before the, every night there you're there till kind of midnight in the, in the week leading up or close to midnight as you yeah, can. Definitely. And the night before you, we slept on well not we. I slept on a, um, <laughs> I slept on a, on a blow up bed in the minister's office for two hours before then before going back to work at six. Wow! And, and everyone was doing the same thing: civil servants, specialisers. They were all in. Campy. We were all in. Yeah. So it, there is there are, there are kind of kind of crazy hours times, but well, yeah, Westminster's like that. I mean, there's one element to that, which is that um, I think Kate said that she wasn't a member of, of her of the party that uh, her uh, mm. her MP represented, but I think probably a good. Um, two thirds, three quarters at least of, of um, researchers and all special advisors do do the job because there is some degree of political um, commitment, Definitely, yeah. and that does kind of keep you going. It's not really, and it's not really even a, a commitment to some great higher ideal or abstract sort of organisation. You end up working for your colleagues and for the, your fellow advisors and researchers because you know that if you stop working, they've got to pick up the slack. So it's kind of a team environment as well as as being a kind of you know, a place for ambitious people to go on their own. Kira, you've got an anecdote about the election. You yeah, share it with us. Um, as I mentioned, I had to stay many times after work to make calls for for an MP to kind of assess what 
her support was uh, in the area. So the, one of the questions that I had to ask someone, first of all, I had to call people in north of England, and I didn't, many times I didn't exactly understand what they were saying. Uh, <laughs> and that, so one of the questions was, if the election were to be tomorrow, what party would you vote for? And this woman, who I don't think was all there, she said, the election is tomorrow. And I just, uh, I tried, I thought, maybe should I, should I play it on? Should, should I say yes and, and tell her that she should vote for the person that, um, that I was calling for and maybe that would get me a job, but I uh, thought maybe not. It's such a shame you don't work in think tanks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Kate, you got an anecdote as well. Yeah, I mean, um, as we were just talking about before, I think that there's a real team effort. And even though I'm not a member of the party, of the person that I work for, you still work in a, in a really close-knit team. And the election brought us all really close together. In fact, we actually, um, not the MP, but her team from Westminster moved to the constituency. And uh, we lived in a converted barn for a month and, you know, went out campaigning together and cycling the roots of the uh, local constituency with t-shirts on and things so it's definitely it was definitely a lot of fun there was you know there's a lot to do a lot a lot of excitement going on all right so just to round up can I ask each of you to share what you feel to be a key skill to work in this sector and also what your top tip for budding political types might be you have to be really personable. You have to be able to chat to people you don't know. You have to be able to put people at ease and you have to be easy yourself to talk to. You have to be a good listener and you have to be really good at remembering people's names and remembering who everybody is and what they do. Um, and so I think a top tip would be just take advantage of every opportunity you can in any way that you can. Um, any chance you're given, just just grab it. Don't think about it, you know, just go for it. Kira? Jeez, um... I would like to echo what um, Kate said about being personable. I think one of the main things is politi in politics is to get people to trust you very quickly and not to get disoriented when Malcolm Rifkin walks into the room, as happened to me a few times. Uh, but I think that it's very, very important to be confident and to know that you can get people to like you and trust you very quickly and very easily. Which is why I don't work there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> really, I think um, I'd say it's something that Kate said earlier on uh, about when you've got the opportunity to make a contribution and to answer a question, do so. It's very easy to get uh, a little bit overwhelmed by the great kind of gothic splendour of the past of Westminster, all these various departments you, you might be uh, working in. Uh, but really, whether you're there as an assistant, uh, as, a, as a researcher, as an advisor, you're You've got a view, um, you'll be asked for it, and uh, it's your job to, it's a cliche the phrase to speak truth to power, but it's your job to give the best advice and the best support you can. If that means saying, I think you're wrong, I think we should do things in a different way, I think it's important that, that you take the opportunity to do that because um, you know, you, you'll probably only get, get respected more by, by your peers and by your bosses if, if you're kind of candid um, and honest about what, what you know, the challenges you're you, you know, you're all working on together. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Kate McCann, David Mills and Kira Shakroon. Time for the Jobs Top 10 now and Matthew Sanderson from Guardian Jobs is here to help Ali reveal the politically active chart. Kicking off the countdown at 10, it's a public affairs and press manager via PFJ. 
In at nine, it's a senior policy analyst for the National Audit Office. And at eight, TPP is looking for a policy and public affairs officer. Another job via TPP at seven, it's a compact advocacy officer. The American Embassy are looking for a speechwriter at six. But halfway through at five, it's a media officer for Keith Taylor, MEP. At four, it's an impact policy officer for the London School of Economics. And at three, the One Society are looking for a campaign officer. But feeling like David Miliband at two, it's a junior web developer for Soapbox. But this week's victorious younger brother, in at one, it is a senior public affairs consultant with a VMA group. Last on the agenda, we have a few dates for your diary. Okay, Monday the 25th, we have working for think tanks. On Wednesday the 27th, we have a redundancy clinic. And on Thursday 28th, opportunities for creatives in the finance sector. And that's especially with Deloitte. All that's left to say is thanks very much to our guests, David Mills, Kate McCann, Kira Shakroon and Matthew Sanderson from Guardian Jobs and also Harriet Minter and Ali White. Careers Talk was produced by James Crawford. I'm Kerry Eustace and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.